Let's pray, please. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the words of eternal life in your holy word. May we receive its truth with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. In Christ's name we ask, amen. Please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12 again, and then we have one more scripture reading in Acts chapter 1. But let's read Luke 24, 1 to 12 first, and then this morning's sermon is actually going to be on Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Addressing the significance of Christ's resurrection from the dead. Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. This is God's word. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now there were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James, Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. And then turn over to Acts chapter 1, and this will be our sermon text, so you want to stay here in Acts 1, verses 1 through 3. And then next Sunday, we'll get back to the rest of Luke's gospel. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and this is our sermon text for today. Acts chapter 1, verse 1, this is God's word. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. May God bless the reading of his holy word. After Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, the Gospel of Matthew narrates the beginning of Jesus' public ministry with a quotation from Isaiah chapter 9 in Matthew 4. 15, the scripture says, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. On that terrible day that Adam took the forbidden fruit and ate it, the thickest of darkness enveloped the whole earth in an instant. Darkness everywhere. The eyes of man continued to see the material, the physical world around him. But in the most important way, in the spiritual way, all had become darkness to humanity. We often use that imagery of darkness to describe places or seasons of our lives or entire nations. Nations that don't have any churches in them. 
or nations where most of the churches are liberal or apostate. We say those are dark places. Those are dark countries. I had a book in my library years ago called Operation World, and we read through some of it together, and it's an alphabetical listing of all the nations of the world, and the first nation in there is Afghanistan. And they give the religious makeup of of Afghanistan 48,000 mosques. You know how many churches? Zero. Zero. Estimated 3,000 to 3,500 Christians in that entire country of 28 million people. That's a dark country. Sin turned off the lights in the ultimate spiritual sense so that mankind could no longer see. We have eyes but see not. We have ears but we hear not. God warned Adam, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Physically and spiritually, it is still so. We live for a very short time and then we all die. Genesis 5, remember all those people that lived to be 800 and 900 something years old? You hear eight times in that chapter, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Death is the ultimate enemy of God's people. Death is the penalty for sin. Death is what Jesus came to destroy. And the only way for God to accomplish that destruction of death and remain true to his own righteous and holy character being the God who hates all evil and cannot tolerate sin, who will by no means clear the guilty. The only way for him to do this was to add a human nature to himself, to come and do it for us. Then he had to take that penalty, that death penalty, to satisfy divine justice against us by dying in our stead, in our place. But then he couldn't stay dead. He had to conquer death for us so that we would rise as well after we die. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest and most easily provable fact in the history of the world. As we will see, it's only worldview issues that discard the supernatural at the outset that reject Jesus' resurrection from the grave. And as we're going to see, people's anti-supernatural theories are not able to make rational sense of the known and agreed upon facts of history. When men fell into darkness, darkness fell upon the whole world, upon us. But there was a glimmer of light. There was a glimmer of light. Even in the Garden of Eden, God promised, I will send the seed of the woman and he will crush the serpent's head. At some point, a man would be born who would undo this terrible event of the fall. And the whole world was waiting for him. Adam and Eve were waiting for him. Cain's name, the very first human being ever born in the world. Cain in Hebrew means, here he is. Turns out Cain was actually the first Antichrist, sadly. But what a blessing it is to us to have in our laps everything God wants us to know so that we can be happy forever. So we can have a fruitful life here. So we can be carried through our trials here and grow in grace here and then go on to heaven. What a blessing it is for us. We're not waiting for it. We have it all right here in God's word. Nevertheless, for many, many long years, many long centuries, this light of God's gracious promise, it was very faint, but it was still there. Eventually after the flood and God saved Noah and his family, there was a wonderful day in which the light of God began to shine much brighter. Genesis 12, 1. 
Now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. Listen, here's the gospel. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. No longer cursed of God, but blessed. And Abraham knew exactly what that meant. One of his descendants would be the seed of the woman. One of his descendants would be the one who would deliver us from death, deliver us from judgment. It's an amazing thing to think. Genesis 1 through 11 goes through 1,600 years of earth history very, very quickly to bring us to this moment where God calls this pagan idolater, Abram, Abram and his father, Terah, and his family. They're just run-of-the-mill idol worshipers. And God simply says, no, I'm going to save you. I'm going to save you. And I'm going to make promises to you that are going to define salvation history for the rest of eternity. The Virgin Mary was a great theologian. And in her Magnificat, when she is with child by the Holy Spirit, she praises God in that glorious song in Luke chapter 1. She says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Mary was not a dispensationalist. She believed in covenant theology. The gospel, the Christ child, the seed of the woman would be of her. She would give birth to him. And that's the promise God made Abraham. And you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. And she praises God. What you promised Abraham is finally here. He's coming. She knows that child is the fulfillment of it. Shortly after the Tower of Babel, God made that promise to Abram. It was such a long time coming. But God never forgets his promises. And he never fails to fulfill them all. It may seem like he's taking too long. It may seem like, how long do we have to wait? But he will surely make good on everything he's promised. From here in Genesis 12 came the formation of the Israelite nation. Abraham and Sarah were barren. And God miraculously gave them Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob who became Israel and the father of the twelve tribes of Israel and from there the light grew and grew God's conquest and destruction of death was drawing closer and closer the light was shining in the darkness now but it was mostly limited to this small nomadic nation called Israel that would soon make its way to their special home there in the promised land of Canaan and eventually they'd be thrown out of there for their sin but the light continued to shine but the best was still yet to come And throughout those years in the promised land, God sent them prophet after prophet who prophesied judgment against them. But in those judgments were these great promises of redemption that one day the Messiah would come, the Savior would come, the suffering servant would come. And he would bear our sins and be crushed for our iniquities. And the chastisement for our peace would be on him. The darkness that enveloped the world is sin. And it's essential for us to know what sin is. We have to have a, a correct theology of sin. We need to know what it is if we're to understand what Jesus did. What is sin? What is sin? It's any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. That's one thing that it is. It's not merely individual isolated acts of disobedience to God's law, though. Sin is also our condition. Sin is our condition. It's the corruption of our whole nature. There's no part of us, body or soul, that's unaffected by sin. And that's why we get sick. That's why we get injured. That's why we sin against each other. That's why we have guilt all the time in our hearts and minds. 
We feel what we call the ravages of time, but really the problem is not the passage of time. It's that we're in sin and we're all dying. I'm a dying person speaking to a room full of dying people. And a hundred years from now, we will all be dead. Most of us. We age, we break down, we go blind, we go deaf. We get closer and closer every day, every moment to the day that our soul will depart from our bodies. Please remember when people ask you, please remember this. How can you talk about this all good, loving, kind God of yours in this world of horrors? You need to answer that immediately. God didn't create a world of horrors. He didn't create a world like this. He created a paradise. We destroyed it. The person asking the question destroyed it. We are the ones that live here, that God suffers to live here to perpetuate the problem of evil and sin in this world. We inherit a sin nature from Adam and we sin for one reason. It's not nurture. It's not because of our parents. It's not because of our teachers. It's not because we were bullied or anything like that. We sin because we like to sin. We sin because we want to sin. We are the ones that perpetuate the problem of evil. We are the reason there's so much suffering in the world. God made a paradise. It was very good when he was done with it. And we've wrecked the place. What we see today, what you see around you, is but a hollow shell of that original creation's glory and greatness. But for those who know Jesus Christ, they will live in a restored and recreated new heavens and a new earth that will always and forever be free of sin and all its effects. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to save his people from their sins, to conquer death, and one day he will bring all of his redeemed children into the glorious paradise that can never be corrupted again, ever. What are the effects of sin? This is a question many American Christians don't think about. What did sin do to me? What did the fall do to me personally? Well, first we have the guilt of Adam's first sin imputed to our account. The moment we're conceived, we're already sinful. We have the lack of original righteousness. Adam and Eve were created upright. They were created righteous. We don't come into the world like that anymore. We are not righteous anymore. We also have a corrupted nature. That's why no one has to be taught how to lie, cheat, steal, be selfish. We have a corrupted nature. That's what original sin is. And then we have our actual transgressions. All of our actual sins flow out of that corrupted nature that we inherit. Man in sin is also, very importantly, he's also blind to the truth. Man knows there's a God, and he knows God's angry at him. But man is so blinded to the reality of just how deep his own sin is that he quiets his own conscience by constantly telling himself, I'm a good person, I'm a good person, it'll be okay, it'll be okay. If there is a God, surely he'll let me in. But what man does not know will be his downfall. God is holy and requires absolute perfect righteousness if he's going to let anyone into heaven. I was reading a book not too long ago and I saw a quotation from Gandhi. Gandhi said, Whatever else you might say about Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount will always be true for me. I thought the Sermon on the Mount is not good news. The Sermon on the Mount is bad news. Okay, here's the, here's the, here's the passage that will always be true. Matthew 5.48, Jesus said, Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's why we need Christ, because nobody is. What man needs is an atonement. He needs God's justice to be satisfied. Man needs a perfect robe of righteousness to cover all of that arrogance and pride and envy and lust and everything else and stealing. 
We need a robe of righteousness achieved by someone else who's perfect. What man needs is, is someone to conquer death, to overcome death by dying and then rising again for us. Jesus alone did it all, did all these things. Only he can freely forgive and justify and bring repentant sinners into heaven. Let's look at these three verses. Each, each verse gets its own heading. If you've got your bulletin there, there's an outline in it. Point number one, just the beginning. Look at verse one of Acts 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, and by the way, that's Luke's gospel. Always remember, Luke and Acts at one point were one big book. So Luke wrote Acts as well. The first account, namely the gospel of Luke, I composed, O Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Okay, stop there. Notice the term began. Began. The work that the Lord Jesus did in being conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary and being born, growing up, living righteously, his public ministry, his profound teaching, his mighty miracles, his arrest, his trial, his condemnation, his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection from the dead. That was the perfect accomplishment of our redemption from sin. That work is finished, but Jesus has continued to work. Jesus is still working now. Recall the words that Jesus said after he was first confessed to be the Christ in Caesarea Philippi, Matthew 16, 18. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And the book of Acts chronicles the building of Christ's church. And its initial growth in the book of Acts is staggering. There's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There's a wave of deep, soul-crushing conviction of personal sin on the part of those listening to Peter's Pentecost sermon. And 3,000 people are converted. 3,000 people are baptized and saved. And the word of God is spreading everywhere. And sinners are repenting and they're coming to Jesus to be saved. Now, dear congregation, when you consider that Christ's apostles, were, they were acknowledged by their enemies to be uneducated and untrained men. Their enemies said, these are a bunch of backwoods Galilean fisher farm boys. What are they up here talking about? It's amazing to consider the long, incredible string of victories that Christ has won in terms of the Gospels penetrating into the darkest regions of the world. Who would ever have imagined that after three brutal centuries of persecution, the Christian faith would come to dominate the world's most powerful empire, Rome, that once employed all of its vicious cruelty to destroy the church? Who would have dreamed that a debauched and violent, arrogant, womanizing young man from North Africa, Aurelius Augustine, after he turned 30, would be converted and would go on to write the most important theological works written in the first thousand years of New Testament history? Who would have thought God could use someone like that? How could anyone have predicted that a lowly German monk's incredible struggle to find assurance that he was really saved would be used by God to ignite the greatest revival of apostolic biblical Christianity and missionary expansion into the unreached world that anyone had seen since the time of the apostles themselves? Who would have thought that God could use someone like that? Think about what we could say about the courageous missionary work of the Cambridge Seven, of Adoniram Judson, of John Patton, David Livingston, William Carey, Spurgeon, Edwards, Whitfield, countless others who brought the gospel to, and they established churches in some of the most dangerous parts of the earth. John G. Patton, when he went to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific, the missionary agencies told him, don't go there, they will eat you. 
The only missionaries that had ever been to Vanuatu, to those islands, were clubbed to death and eaten on the beach. And the missionaries got in their boats and said, we're not coming back here. And Patton said, no, no, no. We're claiming these islands for Christ. What Jesus did in the Gospels, it's only the beginning. Here in verse 1, again, hear Luke's words again. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach. Isn't it encouraging to you? God can use us to do the same kinds of things. He's still at work and he can use you. He can use me to bring the gospel to people. To love people. Jesus continues to build his church. And history is the story of God saving his church and spreading his influence and his glory all around this dark world. It's the story of light pushing away the darkness. When we're tempted to turn in on ourselves and think that we're the center of all things and that our problems are insurmountable and that our grief is too great to be healed, just remember what the existence of everything is for, the exaltation of God in his glory. That's all we need to know. All that Jesus began both to do and teach has that as its grand goal, the exaltation of God in all his glory. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Doesn't that make your problems seem really small in comparison? For those who turn on their bed because their hearts are so troubled they can't find sleep, Be still and know that God is God, that he will be exalted among the nations and in the earth. For those whose hearts are heavy with sadness, with discouragement, frustration, with an overwhelming sense of failure, heartache, pain, be still and know that God is God, that he will be exalted among the nations and in the earth. Remember the words of God's servant Moses, which the Lord commanded him to say to Pharaoh's face. In Exodus 9, rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For at this time I will send my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Now, if I stretch my hand out, and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I may make my power known in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Why are we here? Because God's making a name for himself. That's the only thing we need to know. God will make a name for himself. The very first petition in every prayer that the Christian is commanded to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. God's zeal for his own name, his own glory, that is to be our zeal as well. So whatever the trials are, whatever's going on, we wear that name. We are called upon to glorify that name. And the way we respond to our trials, the way we respond to everything that happens is to glorify that name. All that Jesus began to do and teach is for the glorification, for the hallowing of God's name. The Lord God of heaven and earth, the triune God is making a name for himself and exalting himself among the nations and in the earth. And the darkness will not always prevail. The light of truth is already shining. That city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, it remains ever in our sight in the distance. And every day we're one step closer to it. God is in the midst of her. 
She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations will rage, but God will melt them with his voice, with the power of his word. What Jesus began to do continues to be done in this world. The church in our dear country, in this grand experiment in liberty, is losing its soul and giving in to every pragmatic call to compromise, but there will always be resistance to it. The gates of hell will not prevail. What Jesus began to do and to teach will prevail in the end against every error, against every argument, against every form of apostasy and heresy and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. It will one day be brought into captivity to Christ. Verse 2 of Acts 1. Until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. When Jesus physically departed the world for heavenly glory and his great ascension, he, being the loving caretaker of his church, immediately, through the Holy Spirit, gave commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. What commandments is he talking about? There's two of them. First is the Great Commission. Everyone knows that one. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And then there's one other one in verses 4 and 5 there. You see it? See verse 4 and 5? Being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. What he's telling them is, guys, don't go anywhere. Stay here. When the Spirit comes upon you, I'm going to empower you for a supernatural ministry. And you're going to go out and you're going to peel back the darkness in waves. There are nations left to be baptized and discipled today. America has not been evangelized yet. Our generation alive right now is probably one of the most comprehensively, biblically illiterate and theologically ignorant generations that has ever existed in any country at any time. There is so much to teach. There are so many arguments to be torn down, so many false worldviews to be left behind, and so many hopeless and unloved people who have yet to hear the glad tidings of great joy in the gospel. There is so much scripture to be exposited and taught. There is a perfect savior for the brokenhearted and the wicked, for the ruined sinners of this world. Everything they need him to be for their salvation, he is. There will never be a shortage of work to be done for Christ. The work of loving our spouses. Do you realize that is fulfilling the Great Commission too? So often people think, what can I do? What can I do? I'm going to go sell everything and move to Central Africa and sling mud with a pith helmet on or something. You really want to serve the Lord? Start in your living room. Start with your spouse. The work of loving our spouses, loving our churches, loving our children, praying for one another, loving one another, crying together, rejoicing together, shining Christ's light in the darkness. It never ends until we're in glory. And as long as there are human beings alive in your life, you have opportunities to glorify God by loving them. The Great Commission is much greater than people think it is. It's much greater. It's far greater. It's far greater than the salvation of the souls of the world around us. That's 
the biggest part of it for sure, but it's also teaching those nations to observe all the things that Christ commanded. It's taking godly dominion over every scientific discipline. How many of you, it breaks your heart. You watch documentaries about the things that God made and we're told chance made them. Evolution made them. Darwin made them. That should make our hearts burn and say God should be glorified for all of this. We need to take dominion over geology, over every form of science, over all the vocations, every scientific discipline, every job, history, all of it. Christians need to be engaged in all those tasks. And how could it be anything other than that? Who is the creator of all things, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, the laws of physics and mathematics, geology and astronomy, and all the rest of it? Who is the creator of all of it? God. All must be brought back into subjection to the creator. There is no end of work we need to do. Look at uh, verse 3. To these he also presented himself alive, his apostles there, after his suffering, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now it's here that we see a literal explosion of light into the darkness. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So now there's this bright and shining torch in the world, the resurrected Christ and those that preach him. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. It's an amazing thing to consider. I want to encourage you to reflect on this. Jesus was truly dead. R.C. Sproul said this, quote, When Jesus cried out, it is finished, and yielded up his spirit to the Father, he was truly dead. His spirit left his body and went to be with the Father. So the body he left behind was a corpse. Like any other corpse, there was no heartbeat. There were no brain waves. There was no blood pulsating through his veins. Jesus was dead. And as a dead man in his humanity, he was utterly powerless to do any significant work. End quote. It was a real death, just like we'll die. It's an utterly sobering thing to to meditate on. The dead body of the Son of God on the cross, limp and lifeless, just hanging there. You know, Jesus had to have those nails pried out of his wrists, pried out of his feet. I once listened to a a lecture on how physically devastating it is to be uncrucified, to get someone off of a cross. Getting a dead body off a cross is no small task. And the damage that's inflicted by the removal of the spikes from the wrists, from the feet, it often does more damage than even their application. Sobering to think of Joseph of Arimathea, this, this gutsy, bold Pharisee, asks for his body. Asks for his body and takes that, that limp, dead body off the cross with care and makes sure that it's properly wrapped and laid in a newly hewn tomb. It's a gussy move by that man. He was special. I think of the number of strong men it would have taken to roll that stone over the entrance. Remember the Roman guards. It's like hell itself is doing everything it can to keep him in that tomb. We're going to seal the stone and guard it. No one's coming to get him and he's not getting out. The Roman guards are stationed there. And then silence. Sun goes down just like every other day. Friday, day one, the sun comes up. The next day, Saturday, day two, Jesus is laying there dead, just like we'll be dead the day after we die. 
On day three, sun comes up. That very same dead body comes back to life. An angel comes down, scares the guards so badly they stand there like dead men, rolls the stone away, and Jesus walks out. You know, the key apologetic argument that Jesus rose from the dead is actually real simple. God said it happened. Is there any higher authority than God's word? Is it authenticated by anything outside of itself? No. When I took apologetics in seminary, I was able to to take on a project that I always wanted to do. I always wanted to study all the theories about what really happened on Sunday morning. What do the naturalists say? What do people who are atheists think really happened? I did a lot of reading, a lot of painful reading, a lot of entertaining reading too, actually. A lot of liberal scholars trying to explain what are generally regarded as established facts. And I was I was pleasantly surprised in that research to find out that there are three historical facts that even the most flaming atheistic liberal scholars acknowledge happened. Number one, Jesus existed and he was crucified by the Romans. You cannot dispute that fact. That is a fact. Secondly, he died and he was buried in a tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. In fact, one of the German guys I read, a guy named Gerd Ludemann. This guy is an atheist to the core. He said that Jesus was taken down from that cross by Joseph of Arimathea and buried in his tomb. He says that is historically certain that that happened. And thirdly, they all acknowledge this. Jesus' followers claimed to be eyewitnesses of his resurrection. And all of them suffered terribly defending that claim without a single one of them ever breaking ranks and denying it. Okay, so what happened? What would account for these Amazing events. Question. What's the best explanation? The first theory. The swoon theory. The swoon theory. This is the idea that Jesus didn't actually die. He just passed out on the cross. And when he was placed in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, he was actually still alive. And after several hours, he was revived by the cool air of the tomb. Arose and departed. You know who refuted that theory? Another atheist, David Strauss, an atheist, said this, quote, It is impossible that a being who had stolen half dead out of the sepulcher, who crept about weak and ill, wanting medical treatment, who required bandaging, strengthening and indulgence, and who still at last yielded to his sufferings, could have given to the disciples the impression that he was a conqueror over, the death, over death and the grave. The Prince of Life, an impression which lay at the bottom of their future ministry. Such a resuscitation could not only have, or excuse me, could only have weakened the impression which he made upon them in life and in death. At the most, could only have given it a mournful voice, but could by no means possibly have changed their sorrow into enthusiasm, their reverence into worship. I mean, if Jesus didn't actually die, even if he had been taken to a hospital, he would have died shortly after that. Swoon theory. Nonsense. He passed out and then convinced his disciples he was actually risen from the dead. The second theory is the theft theory. We know that the the guards, the Roman guards, were paid to lie about this. Theft theory. This view says the disciples came and stole the body. One scholar said in response, quote, Let us be fair. We are confronted with an explanation which to reasonable minds cannot and does not explain a thing. 
a solution which does not solve. When the chief priests induced Pilate to command that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, the factual record justifies the conclusion that the sepulcher was in very truth made sure. Reasoning, therefore, from that record, we are inescapably faced with the conclusion that the measures taken to prevent the friends of Jesus from stealing his body now constitute unimpeachable proof that they could not and did not steal it. Another said this, these disciples were in no mood to go out and face Roman soldiers, subdue the entire guard, and snatch the body out of the tomb. I think myself, if they had attempted it, they would have been killed. But they certainly were in no mood to even try it. On Thursday night of that week, Peter had proved himself such a coward when a maid twitted him in the lower hall of the palace of the high priest, accusing him of belonging to the condemned Nazarene, that to save his own skin, he denied his Lord and cursed and swore. What could have happened to Peter within those few hours to change him from such a coward to a man rushing out to fight Roman soldiers? Two final theories. These, are, these two are my favorite. The first one, hallucination. All 12 disciples and the 500 eyewitnesses had the same hallucination at the same moment. And it was so powerful that they all went to their deaths defending that it actually happened. And then the last one is almost comical. They went to the wrong tomb. (laughs) The disciples of Jesus, very shortly after this, went right into the city. Can you imagine this? They went to the wrong tomb. It's empty. He must have risen from the dead. They go down into the city. He's alive. They're proclaiming, we're eyewitnesses of it. And they didn't claim merely that the tomb was empty. They claimed that they saw him, that they touched him. They ate with him. They talked to him for 40 days. Now here's the key to why this cannot possibly have happened. To permanently shut the apostles' mouths, all the Jews and the Romans in the area would have had to do is go to the right tomb, get his body, and cart it out in the streets. He's not alive. Here he is. But they never did that. You know why they didn't do that? Because he wasn't in that tomb. Major problem with every one of these theories. Remember reading through them. Every one of them requires a greater miracle than the resurrection itself. And all these theories are made up by men in the name of protecting atheism, naturalism, materialism. They begin with the assumption God cannot, God must not exist. It's the same with evolution. They begin with a personal commitment. God must not exist. Now let's go look at the facts and see if we can explain them in light of that personal commitment. No divine explanation is allowed. No intelligent design is allowed. No sovereign providence allowed. Now consider this historical fact that we know from Scripture, from the book of Acts. The apostles of Jesus, Jesus including Peter himself, the one who denied he even knew him, They went out and preached that they were eyewitnesses, not of a resuscitation, but of a resurrection from the dead, that they had seen him alive. And they went out and preached that at great personal expense. They were bitterly persecuted. They were beaten. They were thrown in prison. And as tradition tells us, all of them died martyrs' deaths without a single one of them ever denying it. Immediately, skeptics will answer this and they'll say, hey, people die for what they believe is right all the time. People die for what they think is right all the time. Big deal. But those who say that are missing something critically important here that changes the argument entirely. Please hear me. People throughout history have very often been willing to give their lives for what they believe to be true. Many people have given their lives for what they thought was true. Those terrorists who drove those jets into the Pentagon, into the World Trade Center towers, 
They obviously held those beliefs very strongly. You know, I had nightmares about that for years after that. So awful to think about. What would it take for a man to keep his hands steady on the wheel in a jet filled with fuel and innocent people and drive it into a building filled with innocent people? Rock solid convictions for sure. They believed those things were true. They believed that if they died killing infidels, that if they were willing to endure a little pain, they'd wake up in paradise. But all of them woke up in hell. People die all the time for what they believe is true. Here's the difference. Men do not die. They don't die willingly. They don't suffer torture willingly. They don't suffer poverty and imprisonment willingly for what they know without question is false. Men don't do that. People die for what they think is true all the time. But nobody will allow themselves to be tortured to death for what they know is false. And that's why the founder of Harvard Law School, Simon Greenleaf, a Jew who was challenged by his students, consider applying the laws of legal evidence to the Gospels. Do you think Jesus rose from the dead? And Greenleaf wrote a book about it after he became a Christian and said any unbiased jury in this nation would come back with one verdict, Jesus rose from the dead. Because men do not die for things that they know are false. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, every one of those apostles knew it. Every one of them knew it. And Greenleaf said there's only one conclusion. He did rise from the dead. And that's why they all died for it. If you reject the resurrection, you're not only disbelieving the testimony of God's word, but you also have to explain why. Why would any man or group of men hold something that they knew was false when they had nothing to gain by doing that except torture Hatred, persecution, and horrific deaths. You know, tradition in Eusebius' Ecclesiastical History of the Church says Peter was crucified upside down where your guts run into your throat. Why would he do that? You don't think Peter would have gone, did we, did we really see him or not? He did that because he knew it was true. He'd seen him. He touched him. He watched him eat. To those among us here who have been convicted of our helpless estate, in our wickedness and our sin, of our inability to save ourselves because of anything in us. The fact of Christ's resurrection is one of the greatest comforts that we have. Come what may, he's alive. Come what may, my sins are forgiven. Come what may, I am clothed in his righteousness and I have eternal life. In our lowest moments, the unalterable fact of the resurrection speaks the greatest comfort to our souls. Not only did Jesus suffer and die to take the punishment for all my sins, my past, present, and future sins. Not only did he obey all of God's commandments perfectly, vicariously in my behalf, as my legal representative, but Jesus rose from the dead after he took that death penalty pronounced in Eden so long ago. God told Adam, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Jesus, therefore, died. But he rose from the dead. He is alive now. He has destroyed death. He has abolished death. And when he returns, death itself, we're told in Revelation 20, 14, death will be thrown into the lake of fire. Abolished from creation for good. When the children of God are raised in their incorruptible resurrection bodies, they will be brought into a new heavens and a new earth where God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. 
No more arthritis. No more headaches. No more bad knees, bad ankles, bad lungs, bad hearts, bad brains. No more pain for the former things have passed away. The former world of sorrows, the world of tears that we used to live in, it will be gone forever and forgotten. Isaiah 65, 17. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. It's because we can't forget. It's because we can't forget that we carry the deepest wounds and scars in our minds. You know, a scarred and a damaged heart is worse than a scarred body. It's because we remember and we feel the horrors of this world that the notion of not remembering it is so sweet. You know, there's a lot I hope we can remember from this world. The Lord has put wonderful people in my life who have loved me in Jesus' name. I don't want to forget that, but there's a lot I do want to forget. I know there's a lot that you want to forget too. That prophecy in Isaiah 65, it goes on to say, For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing, and her people a joy. And joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. The fact of Christ's resurrection is an unchangeable anchor for the Christian. And the angels triumphantly asked those women who were there to anoint a dead body. They weren't going to meet the risen Christ, they were going there because that's where he was dead. And those angels said, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. Christ, the first fruits of the resurrection of his people. The fact that Jesus is alive today is what has made it possible for the people of God to despise death and to have no fear of it. I hope everyone here can die unafraid. Not afraid. Not afraid of death. Jesus destroyed it. He's conquered it. It's only the true believer in Christ that can have that confidence of which he speaks. Athanasius, the great defender of the deity of Christ, in his book on the incarnation of the word where he defends the deity of Jesus Christ, he also has some of the strongest gospel proclamations that you could read from any Christian writer. And this is way back in the early 300s. So Athanasius lived in a time where Persecution is still going on and Christians are being fed to the lions and tortured to death. Athanasius wrote this on the incarnation of the word, quote, A very strong proof of this destruction of death and its conquest by the cross is supplied by a present fact, namely this. All the disciples of Christ despise death. They take the offensive against it. And instead of fearing it by the sign of the cross and by faith in Christ, trample on death as something dead. Before the divine sojourn of the Savior, even the holiest of men were afraid of death and mourned the dead as those who perish. But now that the Savior has raised his body, death is no longer terrible. But all those who believe in Christ tread it underfoot as nothing and prefer to die rather than to deny their faith in Christ, knowing full well that when they die, they do not perish, but live indeed and become incorruptible through the resurrection. But that devil who of old wickedly exulted in death, now that the pains of death are loosed, he alone it is who remains truly dead. You hear that? He's saying, God's people, we live forever. It's Satan who's dead. There is proof of this too. For men who, before they believe in Christ, 
think death horrible and are afraid of it, once they are converted, despise death so completely that they go eagerly to meet it and themselves become witnesses of the Savior's resurrection from it. Even children hasten thus to die, and not men only, but women train themselves by bodily discipline to meet it. And he's talking about real stuff here. 15-year-olds tortured to death. 19-year-olds tortured to death. Young women tortured to death. So weak has death become that even women who used to be taken in by it mock at death now as dead, a thing robbed of all of its strength. Death has become like a tyrant who has been completely conquered by the legitimate monarch. Bound hand and foot, the passers-by sneer at death, hitting him and abusing him, no longer afraid of his cruelty and rage because of the king who has conquered him. So has death been conquered and branded for what it is by the Savior on the cross. Death is bound hand and foot. All who are in Christ trample death as they pass by, And as witnesses to him deride death, scoffing at death and saying, O death, where is thy victory? O grave, where is thy sting? End quote. Some of these church fathers wrote stirring stuff, didn't they? In conclusion, the Hutterberg Catechism asks a great question. How does the resurrection benefit us? How does the resurrection benefit us? Answer. First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make us share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are already raised to a new life. And third, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. Darkness fell on the earth and God has brought light in the place of that darkness. Death will take everyone here if the Lord tarries, but it will not have the last word. For we shall raise from the dead ourselves. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we bless your name for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus and the perfection of his work. May our worship glorify your name. May we live in the light of his resurrection, his cross work. Help us to keep him always before us. When life wants to trample us, when life wants to make us down, when our joy is being robbed by trials, let us remember death is a defeated foe. It has no say over us, and there is no condemnation ever for those who are in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.